And all of the research shows that diversity of thought and a diverse workplace will have better outcomes than those that are less diverse. And so I think that's the place to begin is like, this is the best thing to do, not just the right thing. But there's a long space between the person at the top of an organization who's committed to this and those who are in an HR function or a people function actually operationalizing it. And so you've got to get that buy-in all the way down the organization. You've got to have a joined up approach. Welcome back to the Web Chats podcast, a podcast from White and Black Limited. My name is Sam Ridgeway. Thank you for taking the time to tune in to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed our previous episode with co-founder of Charles Tirrett Shirts and former chairman of Kath Kidston, Peter Higgins. We had a really interesting conversation about how a smart and smart casual clothing brand actually came out of the global pandemic and the global work from home crisis in their eyes stronger than they went into it and how a small tweak in the ability to be agile facilitated that. And we also had an interesting conversation around what B2B enterprises and B2B services can learn from B2C organizations, particularly in the area of customer service and customer centricity. And Charles Tirrett have won multiple awards for their customer service provision. So a great person to talk to about that. So do go back and listen to our episode with Peter if you haven't already. But I've got just a brilliant guest for you today and a perfect way really to round things off before a short break for the summer. We'll be back in September with, with more great interviews. But Rebecca A. Chang Ajulu Bushell is CEO of the 10,000 Interns Foundation, which ultimately grew from the 100 Black Interns program and works to create opportunities for underrepresented students by partnering with UK businesses for paid internships. And the 10,000 Interns Foundation has the 10,000 Black Interns and the 10,000 Able Interns programs running simultaneously. And the foundation works with the likes of Nike, LinkedIn, Capstone, the NHS, and us here at White and Black, actually, we, we recently ran some training for students on the program preparing for legal internships. But Rebecca herself has a really remarkable journey to this point. Her first career was actually in professional swimming. She was ranked number one in the world. She was British champion and she was the first black woman to swim for Great Britain. And after retiring from competitive swimming in 2011, she became a communications consultant and founded NKG, which is a media and communications agency focused on social change. Rebecca also studied fine art at Oxford and has produced an award-winning documentary titled Breakfast in Kazumu, which is about her father, a leading Kenyan academic and freedom fighter in the struggle against apartheid in South Africa. And if all of that is not enough. Rebecca is listed in the 2023 Forbes 30 under 30 for social impact. And what is so easy to forget is that Rebecca has done all of this aged just 28. It's safe to say then that Rebecca and I had plenty to talk about and we could have done multiple interviews, but we focused on and, and spent time discussing why businesses should aspire to have as diverse a workforce as possible. And what practical steps businesses can take to increase diversity in their workforces and what they can do at the recruitment stage to address the problem specifically of, of the disparity in employment rates for black and disabled students. And hopefully, like many of these podcasts, there are some practical things to take away and implement in your businesses, as well as plenty of food for thought more generally. 
but I started out by asking Rebecca about how she got to where she is today and what the biggest challenges that she has faced as a leader and as a business founder. It's always hard to talk about yourself and I'm kind of glad that that hasn't gotten easier. Um, I don't love talking about myself, but I seem to have to do it more and more um, these days. So I guess a good place to start is that I grew up in Nairobi um, and I lived in Kenya for seven years. That's where I learned to swim in the Indian Ocean. And then my family moved down to South Africa. So I spent my kind of early teen years in Cape Town. Um, and I guess that informed a lot of my relationship with blackness and being mixed race um, and just a sense of cultural literacy and like how other people live. And I think I've always had that kind of third culture kid way of being. I don't really have a strong sense of home because we moved around so much. Um, and yeah, that's definitely a part of who I am and how I relate to other people. Um, by the time we were in South Africa, I think the swimming thing had kicked up quite a lot. And, you know, resources in that part of the world are, are limited, especially when it comes to training facilities and the things that you need to kind of make it to the top of a sport like swimming, lots of hours in the pool. Um, so I got shipped off to boarding school uh, by choice and also kind of because that was the thing that was going to take my career to the next level. And I went to Plymouth College with Tom Daly um, and mm -hmm. Henry Slade, England rugby player as well. Mm -hmm. It was Barry Sporting School. Um, and they had this partnership with the swimming program. And so I swam a lot all through my GCSEs, um, through some of my A-levels. I was ranked first in the world at 16. And... In 2010, I became the first black woman to swim for Great Britain at the Europeans um, and then for England at the Commonwealth Games later that year. And I don't know, race and racism, um, both institutional and also internalized by myself, definitely made that a difficult period of time. Like I was really young. There was a lot of press and media attention, lots of people talking about with politics, the, the color of my skin. Um, and I think, you know, when you're a teenager, you just want to fit in, right? And mm -hmm. so it wasn't, you know, that wasn't necessarily the kind of attention that I wanted. And, you know, to compete at the highest level, you need to kind of shut out the noise. Um, and so that got harder and harder to do. And eventually I decided that whatever I was going to find at the end of that road wasn't worth what I was going through. And so I quit the Olympic team at the end of 2011. And I actually started focusing on school again, which I hadn't done for a long time. Um, and then I went to Oxford the next year and studied um, art, which was a bit of a surprise to my parents. Um, and um, my very useful degree in dinner table conversation has taken me quite far. This is great. Um, and... How did I end up here? So I was doing my PhD. Uh, I started my PhD and I was in America and it was just before COVID. Um, and, you know, I'd had a kind of career in comms. I kind of kept one foot in the art world. I did some production, made some films. And that was what I was doing until COVID happened. Um, and then 
it was all insane with visas and things going online. It was Trump government and they were like, need to get out of America. And I was like, you don't need to tell me twice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving. Um, and I and I kind of I got back here, back to the UK. And I don't know, it was just a weird time in my life. Like I kind of needed some some new direction. And, you know, this thing that I had planned on doing for the next five, five years hadn't worked out. Um and I was writing a book proposal about my life uh, in the swimming pool. And then I got headhunted to do this job, which is the job I have now, uh, the CEO of the 10,000 Interns Foundation. Um, and those things were in kind of horse race through the summer of last year, I guess. Um, and then the same week that I started the job, the book sold. And so I spent the first six months running this company full-time and also writing every evening um yeah 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 it's been wild and i mean we'll talk more i guess about the Ten Thousand Interns foundation but that is where i am today book is done thank goodness it's done okay and it's done it's done and work is still full-on and never ends of course and there's probably so there's probably um 10 different interviews just in your in your career to date there, Rebecca, that we could do, we could pick out, um, I mean, you've had multiple careers in different- It's a, different it's a lot of life. Areas. Mm. There's a lot of, there's fascinating things in there. And we'll come on to talk, talk about um, a few of those. You mentioned 10,000 Black Interns and, and the 10,000 Intern Foundation just there. Um, I wonder if you, we, you, you could just give a, a bit more context as to, as to what you do and, and what that's all about for, for, for listeners that don't know. Yeah. So we exist. Why do we exist? We exist to champion underrepresented talent. Um, and we do that at scale because we believe that that is the path to impact um, and long term change and transformation. Um, and so what that means very practically is that we create programs for students and graduates um, to gain in industry insight um, and access to opportunity. And those are paid internship programs. Um, so the organization started back in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. And we started as the 100 Black Interns Project. And it was just facing the kind of investment management world, the city, um, and trying to get young Black kids into those roles because the underrepresentation within that demographic was extensive, is still extensive. Um, and it grew and grew very quickly. Um, and today we have created 5,000 paid internships in just three years. Uh, we work with 700 companies across about 30 sectors. And when I joined the organization last year, September, we launched a new program, the pilot program called 10,000 Able Interns for students and graduates with disability. Um, and so giving disabled talent that same opportunity to access insight to industry, um, you know, try out jobs that they might think are not for them or they can't see a pathway into those roles. Um, and create a kind of sustainable cycle of mentorship and an alumni community that will hopefully lift as they climb and usher other people from those same backgrounds into those roles. And it is very full on, very challenging work, as you can imagine. Mm. But we have a great set of participating organizations, people who give very generously of their time and their wisdom, much like yourselves, um, running training programs throughout the year. So yeah, it's very 
it is very, very good work, and I'm very proud to be involved. Amazing, yeah, and and like you say, over over 700 participating organisations already, huge number, and you, I encourage anyone to go and go and check you out on Instagram and LinkedIn and, and the website and get involved because you know in, in relatively short space of time, really already fundamentally evolving what what the UK workforce looks like and and, and working towards doing that. And I, I want to talk about the, the work specifically and, and the problems that you're addressing, Rebecca, maybe a bit later on. But but if it's okay sure. with you to begin with, I'd quite like to focus on, on you and, and you mm. as, as a leader and a founder, uh, a CEO now. You're, so I think founder and, and, and now advisor to, to NKG, which was um, a company you founded, I think, and, and um, obviously CEO of, of the 10,000 Interns program. I ask a lot of people I speak to on, on this podcast this question, and it's perhaps slightly cliched, but I ask it because oftentimes the answer, whilst the answers whilst different, uh, do have similar themes running through them. And, and that's despite a complete array of individuals from, from different sectors and, and companies. But it, in your um, experience as, as a leader and, and a founder and a CEO, what what do you think is, has been the biggest thing you've learned in the last few years from, from being at the top, really? You know, you made Forbes 30 under 30 list, and that's, I think it's the, defined as the brightest young entrepreneurs and leaders. So, and obviously everything we've mentioned in terms of your, your role. So you are at the top of your game. But, but what's been the, the biggest thing that you've learned in, in that time? You know, I think that the best leaders are those people who can kind of exercise their ego a little bit. You've got to put that outside of yourself. Um, it's not about me looking good, um, you know, or, or me feeling like I'm doing a good job. That's obviously something that governs me every day. I like to challenge myself. I like to push myself. Um, but I think I've learned not to ride the highs or the lows too hard. Um, I think not to hold on too tightly. I had this idea of what a CEO looked like or was, you know, and I had to unify people, I had to bring people together and, you know, I had to get everyone to drink the Kool-Aid. But I think part of leading is like allowing difference to exist and creating an environment that can tolerate um, a level of difference, not just in terms of diverse voices and diversity of thought, um, but also just people have different ways of relating to each other and allowing that to be kind of celebrated and like working with that. I think that is probably the challenge that I set myself every day is like, how much difference can you tolerate? Um, and how can you create an environment that allows for as much diversity to kind of flourish and, and thrive within it? Mm. And that's, that's something you, you have to learn the hard way presumably or oh yeah yeah <laughs> oh yeah um you know it's funny like post-covid in this kind of hybrid world and you're like right we need to get everyone together and everyone's gonna have fun you're gonna have fun you're gonna come to work and have fun <laughs> um you know we're gonna do a social thing we're gonna go out and everyone's just like you know like no we obviously don't want to <laughs> do that and i'm like okay fine so you know it's um for me as a leader it's been recognizing that perfect is the enemy of good and that you know, I don't know, it's complicated when you're working in the third sector um, and all of your work is about impact and delivering impact to your beneficiaries and for the public good. Um, you know, you can't be too pragmatic because there is um, a level of, you know, ethical and moral kind of 
value that you have to grapple with and the process is as important as the outcome. Um, but I think pragmatism as a leader is probably one of, if not the most important thing. Um, and that's also really hard fought and very, very, um, it can be very, very challenging, especially when, you know, you can't always explain to people why you're making the decisions that you are and oftentimes people don't necessarily understand um at the time or ever and it can be quite isolating i think um i know that a lot of ceos you find yourself kind of you're between a board and your team and you are alone in that in that place <laughs> and so yeah it's where do you kind of draw strength from and, and where do you find that um drive and determination when oftentimes you can feel like you are a bit of a solo traveler where so where where do you think that comes from for you personally i mean is that multiple multiple sources what, what, what do you think that is for you well i spent 10 years looking at the bottom of a pool <laughs> so i don't really have a problem being alone <laughs> um i you know, I don't know, I was always quite a weird child. I spent a lot of time reading and I spent a lot of time very much in my own world. I think, you know, I'm the single child of my two parents. Um, you know, being mixed race, you're kind of born between these two cultures and you're neither one nor the other. Um, so I've always felt very singular and I've always been very competitive and very driven even before I got into sport. Um, that just felt like one avenue in which I could play out that intensity. And, you know, I don't know, my working life, I guess, has been another. So, you know, I think that I like feeling like I'm at the edge of the world about to fall off. I think that there's something really um, inspiring about fear and it kind of pushes us to keep going beyond the limits that we think exist. Um, that's probably where I draw inspiration from mm. yeah and I um you mentioned you mentioned your swimming there and you were you were talking about it at the top a bit and it's something that um you've you've spoken very openly about in in the past and, and particularly the struggles you've had around being a, a young black woman in in what was wasn't and still is I guess a very white elitist sport mm -hmm. and there's a um you know, you talk of a of an identity struggle, I suppose, of what was a really formative age, and and you've you've spoken about not coming to own it and and owning your success and and the label and the title you were given really until relatively recently. You you've mentioned the kind of the determination, the competitiveness there, but I wonder if you could perhaps talk a bit more about that and and specifically if you if that experience and and actually that struggle that that fight in those early formative years has shaped the, the, the leader and, and the CEO you are today it, in whatever way that might be. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. Yes. Yes, I can. Um, I've just spent six months writing a whole book about it, so I should be able to talk about it. Swimming was one of the greatest loves of my life and there was a lot of joy there was a lot of joy in being in the water and feeling so connected to my body feeling so in control of this thing that I could do at some points better than anyone else and 
you know, that really fed me. It formed a lot of my identity. I was always the swimmer before I was anything else, before I was a black woman, before I was the first black woman to swim for Great Britain. Um, and I didn't have a strong relationship with blackness growing up. Um, my mom is white, my father was black, and I grew up kind of in expat Kenya, which is relatively white space, going to international schools. And so there was an identity struggle exactly as you as you pointed out around, you know, is this title relevant to me? You know, I don't feel black enough. Um, you know, I'm I'm not white. I didn't understand what, what these things meant. And I was 15, 16 years old. But I think coming to terms with that has also been, you know, a really beautiful journey, I guess, in that I have a real a real strong sense of, of my identity and, and who, who I am. And that has been shaped by my existence as a black woman in the world. And also because I, I spent 10 years pushing my body beyond what was physically kind of reasonable. Um, mm. And so definitely I feel a strong sense of responsibility to my racial identity and, you know, to the challenges that underrepresented minorities in inverted commas face um, because they're also my struggles and that's my history but also you know I have a very high tolerance for being uncomfortable because um, you know I I'm pushed my body uh, through that for a long time and I think swimming has taught me that it's it's okay to lose um, and it's okay to walk away from something and it's okay to change direction and that that won't be the end of your life and it did feel like that when I quit for a long time I was scared that the best thing I was ever going to do had already happened to me um and I was 17 mm. quite a terrifying <laughs> and you quit did you quit in 20 was it Olympic year is that right was it, it was, 2012 it was the end of 2011 end of 2011 so coming up to that Olympics at the end of that Olympic cycle you, that's right that, that's going to add to it as well yes yes I watched somebody I trained with win win the Olympics in our event um which was really challenging and you know that was always the dream that was what I worked for mm. the longest point of my career for and I would have been 18 it would have been a home Olympic games but you know walking away was was the right thing for me and although it was really challenging at the time I can't imagine not having had the experiences that I've had since um, and I can't imagine not having had that level of commitment to my education either, which has always been hugely important to me. And I think the I can't remember the exact stat, but the the number of CEOs who have had some level of high some some mm -hmm. um, background in, in elite sport or high level sport is crazy, actually, when you when you see the stats. And that makes so much sense in the way that you explain it now. And the resilience the robustness um but also for, for you personally rebecca and those challenges you faced as a black woman and do you, and going going through that kind of process of um discovering your identity and working that out the, the challenges you face there do you think and I, i'm unfortunately i suspect you probably say yes do you, do you face similar now in the in the business world in albeit in the third sector but in in the role as your role as ceo um and as a leader i know you i think i listened to a, an interview with you where you said you're in, a, in an event you'd put on and you didn't have name badges or anything like that 
and the difference that that you found in people when they discovered you were CEO was so marked. Mm. Is that a regular occurrence mm. for you? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think as my, you know, as I garner more and more visibility in this role, it becomes easier and easier to navigate, right? And I think that that's the sad reality is that, you know, power structures are still well-worn and as more people know who I am and as I get more accolades and awards it all becomes easier and 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 that's you know I don't necessarily know what I think about that but that that is a problem in and of itself that we need these external things to kind of validate our existence and I think it feeds into this narrative that you know as a person of color specifically as a black person specifically as a black woman you know you have to be exceptional to be accepted um my father always used to tell me, you know, you're going to have to work twice as hard to have half as much. And, well, I've certainly worked hard. So <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that either. But definitely, definitely that does happen. Um, and being young, I think, is another, adds another layer of complexity, right? Like oftentimes I go to kickoff days for my interns when they're having their kind of, you know, first day of their internship at their new organization and you know I get to the reception they're like hi like what internship are you here for mm. um <laughs> and that happens quite a lot which is which is yeah which is flattering but also um you know there is an expectation that yeah you wouldn't be you wouldn't be young you wouldn't be maybe you wouldn't be a woman maybe you wouldn't be black but certainly doing what I do I mean I think my board has has great faith in in the fact that I'm the right person for the job and I hope my team feels the same and you know, I know what I'm capable of. And so I think being a light-skinned Black woman at these tables who's been fortunate enough to have a great education, I'm able to ignore a lot of that stuff because it's my responsibility to speak up in rooms that and at tables that weren't meaningfully built to include people like me, but also people who have had fewer opportunities or suffer from colorism as a kind of intersectional point of racism. And yeah, it doesn't feel like too much of a burden, right? Mm. Mm. I wonder then if we if we can move on and, and talk a bit more about that that responsibility and, and the work that you do um, with the 10,000 Interns Foundation, the 10,000 Black Interns and 10,000 Able Interns, mm. obviously in this area of um, employment inequality. And the, con the continued lack of, of diversity in so many sectors especially at high levels is you know c continues to be a massive problem it's it's, it's no mystery and, and our sector the legal sector is is a prime example i was looking at the the latest figures which are from 2021 i, th I think it's done every two years so right. the the more the the updated figures will be published later this year but you know, in 2021, just 18% of lawyers and 17% of partners in UK law firms were black, Asian and ethnic minority. And just 5% of lawyers had a disability and only 4% of partners. So those stats speak for themselves and, and, and that's just the legal industry. But it, it highlights the absolute necessity and importance of, of what you guys are doing at 10,000 um, interns foundation you you hear a lot of businesses these days asking and and questioning around diversity and and you know saying how do we achieve it how do we do that it's something we really want 
you know something we're very aware of now but 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 how do we do it and i i read a another interview with with you i think it was a print interview and you said diversity is a verb and you have to get up and do it and I, I love that, and I think a lot of businesses, perhaps through through fault of their own or, or otherwise, don't don't always know where to start with doing that. Um, but I think your your quote is so true, and I, and I think the bulk of this lies with the organisation and the businesses and, mm. and, and leadership to work this out, um, and as you put it, to get up and do it. But as someone who who works primarily to address this problem through what you do. With with ten thousand interns, I'm I'm interested in in what your approach would be if if you were talking to businesses who are who are addressing this and and putting this right. Is this a hundred percent from from the inside out? Uh, finding right. a solution from the inside out. Is it about actually about utilizing the, the resources, the tools, the programs like yourselves to help to help address this for for mm. companies? Is it a combination of both? What would you say to that, Rebecca? Very, very good question. Um, I'm going to take a long form approach to this. Brilliant. So I think the, I think a lot of people spent a lot of money very quickly responding to that kind of re-eruption of the BLM movement in 2020. Mm. And there wasn't necessarily, you know, and there's, there's no necessarily no blame there, but there wasn't a long-term programmatic agenda attached to that activity for some people. Um, And I think what that means is that as we get further and further away from that moment, people are losing their why, and it's why are you doing this work? Um, And I think that's the first question people need to ask to really commit to, to doing it properly. And I think one of the things that I find it important to impress upon people is that it's not just the right thing to do, like what if it's the best thing to do? for your organization from mm-hmm. a profit perspective, from an engagement perspective, from a productivity expe- perspective. And all of the research shows that diversity of thought and a diverse workplace will have better outcomes than those that are less diverse. And so I think that's the place to begin is like, this is the best thing to do, not just the right thing to do. And then I think it's about buy-in and people talk about it. Normally people talk about the fact that you need buy-in from the top, but there's a long space between the person at the top of an organization who's committed to this and those who are in an HR function or a people function actually operationalizing it. And so you've got to get that buy-in all the way down the organization. You've got to have a joined up approach. I think the other thing is do less, but better have a couple of partners like the 10,000 Interns Foundation. Um, You know, there are loads of other charities doing similar work in similar verticals. Have a couple of good partners that you commit to working with long term and try and foster a joined up approach. You know, really practically, Lloyd's Banking Group, for example, they put our interns on the 10,000 Black Interns and Able Interns program together with interns from the Sutton Trust. And they had a big kickoff day where everyone was together and they call it their inclusive interns program. And I think that that really highlights how much you can kind of embed this in just a broader agenda within your organization. Take that joined up approach and do this work, not in silo, but make it a part of the fabric of who you are as a firm. Use the fact that you're doing this work to signal to your other employees 
that you are inclusive and that you're trying to foster culture change and that that culture is a culture of inclusivity, of diversity, because really your employers are your most important clients, right? Like that's your employer brand is, is what keeps you going. And what we're seeing more and more, especially with younger generations, is that if you're not making a commitment to increase diversity and to promote more inclusive environments within your organization, you're not going to be as attractive um, as an employer to those people coming through at graduate level. So it seems redundant to say it's really important, but it's really important. Mm. <laughs> and I think that it's it's important for for reasons that go beyond the moral. Mm. Yeah, completely. I love that um, best not right thing mm. to do that, that you said at the top. And I suppose like, like so much, like you say, unless in, in, in that motive is right it's there, there is no sustainability there and um, yes. it's something maybe that lasts for a year a year or two but th th there's going to be no sea level shift and and that's um ultimately what we're after and actually what i suppose i was, I was trying to think of a kind of parallel here and we see we seem to have with this whole like um hybrid working thing and understanding what works best and uh, understanding that 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 can work seem to have onboarded that quite well and companies seem to have taken that on and and that's you know i, I don't want to trivialize in any way but i feel like there's there's almost a parallel there in terms of you know this is we have to understand that this is the best thing and every all of the stats support the fact that diverse organizations are ultimately more successful and when that's at the heart, you know, that, that is going to build a, a longer term, more, more sustainable strategy. And I think the other thing for me, Rebecca, is that, that with, with that kind of, um, the reason I bring up that kind of hybrid work analogy is that what works looks different. And that, that led me to then think, well, actually, talent looks different. And, and you, can't put, you can't put talent all in, in the same box, mm. whether that's through very specific criteria that we're looking for, you know, box ticking exercise in recruitment, you, you touch slightly there on the kind of practicalities and, and the drip down right through to HR. But how much of this is, is, is uh, how much of addressing this issue is actually about companies really shifting systems and structures to, to better facilitate new talent? Because it's, to me, it's not just about getting that talent through the door, but it's 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 building an environment then where where that talent can thrive and and can grow and develop through. But how much of that is about shifting systems structures um, to to facilitate and allow for that? Yeah, I think that's really at the heart of of what we're talking about, right? And if organisations aren't ready to meaningfully change and transform in the direction of talent this isn't going to work long term and oftentimes those adjustments are much smaller than people think you know mm. I I was talking about this earlier when I was I was talking about leadership and how you create an environment that tolerates difference and it's funny when I talk to firms sometimes you know they're like how do we how do we deal with this competency gap because you know we really want to take diverse talent but you know, 
this person met 90% of the competencies and this person met 70% of the competencies. And it's always such a funny question because, you know, we're dealing with interns. These people have never worked. Mm. So how could there be such a dramatic competency gap? Um, Hmm. And the answer is there couldn't, right? The reality is that the difference you're seeing there is that the person who meets the more of the competencies is somebody who looks and sounds like you. Um, and you can see them reflected in your organization already, and you can see them fitting into the systems that you have in place. And that person who who doesn't might speak differently to you, might have different ways of expressing themselves, might not look the part or dress the part. But if your organization can't include them, then there's going to be a lack of diversity of thought within within your company. And so the systems and structures that usher these people into roles need to change. And I think what gets measured gets done. So if you're seeing 80 people come through your pipeline and 25 of them are black or disabled, and then you are only seeing 10 people get hired and none of them are black and disabled, you have a problem. Mm. And you've got to look at where that problem is, what are the pain points, what needs to be transformed, social listening, you know, speak to those interns um, or applicants about the recruitment process uh, and figure out what what needs to to happen differently. Because that is exactly, as you said, what's going to create that sustainable long-term change. Um, And we're really focused on that beyond the program. We're focused on, on thinking about how we can embed these structures and processes within organizations. Um, you know, ideally, the 10,000 Interns Foundation in 5, 10, 20 years' time doesn't need to exist anymore, right? That's the hope. Mm-hmm. Um, but but for now, I think, you know, we're really ready to do this work and, and we want to we want to support as many organizations as possible to make this transformation. I feel like you, you, you talk about the kind of 70 90 competency thing there it it's so often to me it's so often mistakenly seen as well you know we don't want to we don't want to sort of change standards or Mm. somehow lower standards in the recruitment process to to allow but it but why do we why do we um simplify in that way and we look past the fact that you know, I suppose it's, it's our own standards that we're changing. You, ha- you have to look deeper than that. And you have to say, actually, it, you know, maybe it's our parameters. And, and we've we've built our own standards based on certain parameters, like you say. And when you're changing those, you are not, you are not lowering standard. You are, you're changing the way you look at that. Um, Absolutely. And Absolutely. It's not, it's not worse. It's different. Yeah, and it, 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 I did a, um, a conversation on this podcast with a woman called Tess Taylor, who is who's founded a, a social enterprise here in Oxford, and, and their focus is on uh, prisoner and ex-prisoner in employment. Yes. And I mean, the stats around that are just remarkable in terms of the reduction in recidivism and and, and um, you know when when employment is found for for ex-prisoners. But we were having a you know, I suppose a similar conversation in terms of the practicalities and, and things like, um, I'm sure you've heard of ban the box and campaigns mm. getting, um, getting that removed from, from the stage and applications. But 
oftentimes it is very small practical changes like that that can yes. that can make a huge difference um i mean are, are there sort of practical examples you can think of there I, th- I think you've referenced a couple there but are there things that you know we, sh- we should be doing as standard practice now um whether that's at application stage or intern stage yeah absolutely i think from a really practical perspective it's important to have representation and visibility um, when you are working with a specific pipeline of black black talent right so you know make sure that the effort uh, does not fall to your sole black employee obviously mm-hmm. but also ensure that that you do have that visibility um, when you are inducting people into your organization and get that balance right you know talk to talk to your black colleagues and, and figure out how they want to be involved instead of just assuming that they do or don't. Um, I think the other piece that's really important is starting to talk about workplace adjustments really early on in the recruitment process so that there aren't any disclosure issues when hand, like dealing with um, you know, impairments and disabled talent. And I think what's really important to acknowledge is that workplace adjustments are often very, very straightforward. Scope does mm-hmm. a huge amount of work on this and they are very inexpensive. Oftentimes, um, they're very easy to implement. And sometimes it's just practical common sense stuff that can make a huge difference to the way somebody is able to do their job and perform and flourish at work. And so a lot of these things, I think, are a lot easier than, than people think they are. And oftentimes, it's not even a case of more resource. It's just different allocation. So I guess I encourage all organizations just to think kind of a little bit more laterally instead of assuming that these hurdles and challenges are too great to surmount. Yeah, I completely agree. And and coming back to that that purpose as well and having that that why in place from day one and you know those those two in combination. I think Exactly. Yeah. Rebecca, I'm, um conscious of your time and that's I, I feel like we've kind of maybe slightly just scratched the surface but mm-hmm. um there's uh, i really hope there's some practical takeaways from for people listening um and, and that's been incredibly insightful for me i wonder just just before we we wrap up um what's next what's next because you you referenced your book you alluded to i think that's is that coming fairly soon uh, it is. It is. Um, what is next? Well, more internships, of course. So, <laughs> um, we're, 100,000 interns next and then uh, ideally with million, it. One million interns. <laughs> no, we're, um, we're piloting some new uh, programs at the moment, exploring different verticals of underrepresentation to meet the needs of, um, you know, even more communities of talent. And we're also thinking about our alumni community and what that could look like over time and, you know, the great potential that that all of those people have. And so, yeah, there's a lot of work to do here, as always. It never ends. Um, but I've got a great team of people around me and it's always so fun in summer because you get to see everybody's intern experiences and stories. They're all over LinkedIn and that feels, you know, it's nice to feel close to to the impact and so we're getting ready for applications opening in september and yeah watch this space and for me i'm 
just about to finish my first year, official year as CEO. So I don't know what's next, maybe sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And my book comes out next year, June, just before the, the next Olympics. And so I know that there will be not a huge amount of respite before I gear up to having to talk about that a little bit more. But um, I'm excited for that to come into the world. It's been a long time coming. And yeah, it's a lot of my life that I've poured into it. So I hope that people feel that it can release them from some of their burdens and struggles, because writing it definitely released me from some of mine. Amazing. Well, I can't personally can't wait to read it. And um, I'd yeah, just encourage anyone who hasn't already to go and explore what you're doing and get involved and bring on interns um, because it is an amazing, crucial work. Um, Rebecca, thank you so, so much. It's been been great chatting to you and I really appreciate you coming on and, and taking the time. Thank you so much, Sam. Yeah, me too.